Hey guys, welcome back to another wonderful episode of Four Guys in a Comic. This is your host, Rusty Surfer, and today I have with me the fantastic tap. The fantastic Matt. Matt. Or Matt, whatever. Yeah. I, don't know, I think it sounds cooler to say a fantastic tap than a fantastic Matt. Well, either way, it's freaking fantastic. Fantastic Matthew. The tap Matt. The Matt tap? The tap Matt? Matt tap. The Matt tap. Something like that. The Matt tap. And I also have the man without fear himself. Daredevil's here? Red Skull. No, it's not. I was going to say Red Skull, I guess, is kind of in the comic world. But um, I'm really talking about Michael. What's going on, Michael? (laughs) It's an excellent day for comics. Right? So, we do not have the extraordinary uh, Nova or Mike with us today. Um, He had to do some traveling for his job and just couldn't make it. He missed out on a great interview tonight, which if you stick around for uh, next week's episode, uh, we'll be talking to a fantastic Marvel artist that just got done with Thanos, and uh, maybe you can just figure it out from there. But, for tonight's episode... We are going to be talking about the evolution of comic art. So, I hope that y'all are ready and excited for this, because uh, we're going to start this off from the early days, you know, the gold, and we're going to kind of lump the silver into it, too, because we can't make this last forever. Uh, What, no platinum age? I know, right? (laughs) We're in little doodles on a newspaper. (laughs) Yeah, maybe, maybe someday. You know, that's something to look into. Uh, that's something to look into. Like, maybe one day we'll go back and do uh, Platinum Age. I know we've tried to touch on it, like, way back in the day. Yeah, wow. we never really get, got into it too much. No, we that didn't. That is a topic we got to get into one of these nights. That sounds like a topic right up your alley. Yeah, it is. Yeah, definitely. But, um, yeah, we're going to go from Golden and Silver together to Bronze Age to whatever you want to call the 90s. Um Modern. What, what we what was what was the name that we came up with for the night? We had a name for it, the Chrome Age, I think was what it was. <laughs> Something like since, yeah, I think that's what it was. Since it was shiny, but yeah, they, it's time for them to put a new age in there. It's just, yeah, modern is still running from '85 to present, so yeah, I don't it, consider what I consider the '90s their own thing, because or maybe the '90s till the early millennium. But it was in but, the '90s, man. Modern Age started in '85. I know what. Really? Yeah. Would you say? I feel like it would push it forward a little. I know it's not, but I mean, it just feels weird now. Yeah. I don't know. But anyways, anyways, we'll get into that later. But we are going to start this off with Golden and Silver Age. So, you know, before we even get into uh, the art itself, um, what are some iconic like characters in comics uh, that you would say were brought to life during the Golden and Silver Age um, through art. Action comics. <laughs> oh yeah, action comics for gold. If you're talking about silver, though, man, you, do you have all gold do you, silver? Stuff, yeah, right? do you have all day for silver? Cause shit, like you you got Spider Man, Daredevil, Fantastic Four. Um, and including in Fantastic Four, so many other people had their first appearances in Fantastic Four. Galactus, Silver yeah. Surfer, uh, the Scrolls, the I mean, you got so many like first appearances. Him, I mean, you got so many first appearances in uh, you know Fantastic Four that it's uh, 
Yeah, that one's kind of yeah, tough. I mean, if you want to go through the evolution, you know, you got to stick with just Golden Age first because Golden Age had a lot. No. Well, tell me some of them, Red. Like, what what are some of the names? And I'm not saying just the writing or the character or anything, but the art that brought these characters to life. Well, let's start off with, you know, our, our Captain America from 1941. Yeah, I'll give you, you know, that one. You look at that, it's like, holy cow you know but you gotta remember golden age so much world war ii uh comic art was going on in that it, a lot what would you say about like a character like batman though i know um we now know anyway that it wasn't uh bob kane it was a uh, bill finger uh that was really figuring it out for bob i guess but um, would you say that Batman is a character that was more brought to life by the art than the writing? I think so. Mm. Honestly, yeah, I think yes. back then, writing... Okay, so back then, I think comic books... And I mean, honestly, I'd have to go back and like interview like my grandfather and my great-grandfather to get their take on it. But for <laughs> me, Golden Age is the art is what brought the golden age to life. Like the stories, like people were like, yeah, they're cool or whatever, but kids weren't reading them because of the stories. Kids were reading them due to like the crazy art and seeing a man fly on a page, uh, you know, seeing a man dressed as like a giant. Well, I guess back then he looked like a bat slash moth thing. Like it was, his costume was a little bit different back then, but you're seeing like, even like a lot of the golden age, honestly, like we're thinking superheroes, but let's be a lot of the golden age back then was like, a uh Zorro, Lone Ranger, you know, those kinds of books. And you're seeing like these masked men and like that's what drew the kids in. It wasn't the writing. It was these pictures of like depicting crazy things. Yeah, exactly. And colors and everything else. Exactly. Yeah. It's something that's never been seen before. Yeah. And if you're gonna talk Golden Age artists, you know, the king of all of it, Will Eisner. Oh yeah it's just the work that he did. I mean, you know, that's why we have the Eisner Wars. You know, the man was a genius. Yeah, no, there was a lot of cool people. And, you know, we, we were thinking 40s and stuff, but, I mean, it, it came into the 50s a little bit, too. And, you know, you had your um, Johnny Craigs and uh, everything else there. But that also brought in a new string of characters for, I would say, really made DC, like, you know, on top through the 50s where you had, you know, uh, these characters like uh, Green Lantern and Flash, everything else, that were all just getting these like new mainstream looks and they were becoming prevalent again throughout the 50s. Um, but uh, would you say that, say, Action Comics number one art versus like a DC showcase or whatever from the 50s, uh, what would you say the biggest difference is in the art? So which ones are you comparing again? I just want to make like sure. Action Comics 40s number one to like a DC. Okay, showcase. so something like now, in the forties and the fifties are still golden age. I know, but I'm saying just with yeah. the decade and how it progressed from the beginning of the golden. So age how did it progress uh, from the thirties to the fifties? Um, I would say you're probably seeing a lot more detail. Um, first of all, in the art, um, in the beginning, it was there wasn't a lot of detail. It was very, you know. I don't want to say generic. I don't know how to explain what I'm trying to say here. There wasn't a lot of detail in a lot of the works and whatnot. Um, but I think, you know, once you start getting into the 50s and the 60s, you're starting to see a lot more detail in pe like in the costumes, in the backgrounds, in the, you know, in the everything. You're seeing way more detail. 
than you did in the 1930s. The 19, I mean, you look at Action Comics number one. Look at just even look at the cover of Action Comics number one because obviously a lot of us can't read it um, for very obvious reasons. Uh, but just look at the cover. There's not a lot of detail on that. Is it a bad cover? Not by any means. But is there detail compared to today's standards or even the standards of like the late 50s and early 60s? There's no detail. No. There's four people holding Superman holding up a car. But you know, for me the the difference that I've noticed between the going from 38 up to the end of the 50s is it got a little bit darker. You saw a little bit more violence, you saw more of the the guns and the the horror and the violent stuff because it wasn't being controlled by the Comic Code Authority at the time. So they were stretching the limits even more and more as time went on. I guess because comics became more popular through that time, they were also more widely distributed. So I think that it would inspire new uh, new groups of artists from the old art, and it, they would be able to, I, I wouldn't say uh, share ideas, but feed off of each other easier. Would you agree? Oh, of course. Yeah. Cool. So moving on from Golden Age, which we got so much iconic stuff, um, we go into the 60s, and we have the birth of Marvel. And uh, Mr. King uh, Kirby pops onto the scene uh, with, you know, Stan Lee and Marvel. Um, how would you say at the beginning, I, I know, Tap, you just started reading a lot of Silver Age stuff, starting with, like, Fantastic Four and such. Um, what would you originally say of some of uh, your first opinions on Jack Kirby's art from when you first started reading it and um how did you notice like i know now you're way further into it how he himself progressed as an artist well if you want to okay so back when i was a kid and i saw you know and i was growing up like in the late 80s and early 90s and seeing the art from that time frame is what i is what i initially was reading so when i saw the older stuff from like the 60s as a kid I didn't have an appreciation for it. I thought the art was sort of like, oh, that's not very good. Like, look at this stuff. Look at Todd McFarlane. Look at Jim Lee. Look at, you know, so I'm like, that, that's for kids. Yeah, I'm like, that's not very good. This is awesome. Um, but that being said, uh, you know, growing up and, and reading comics and, and, the reason, like I said, I've discovered my love for Silver Age. Uh, not only that, I absolutely love the writing in Silver Age. It's fun. The comics are fun. Like, there's not major crossover stories, and there's not, you know, what are we at, 69-issue arcs of books and things like that. Like, it's yeah. just short arcs, and they're fun. They're a good time. Some of them are a little corny, but that was the time. You know, it, it's just a good time. Um, so watching Jack Kirby's art, for instance, in Fantastic Four number one, you could tell he was obviously still trying to to figure out what he wanted the thing to look like ultimately. Because in the first 10, 15, whatever it is, issues, the thing kind of looked like a rocky turd. I mean, he did. There was really no definition to the man. Like it's just sort of like his face is just sort of. It looked like a the rubber poo monster, you know, from Kevin Smith's uh, Dogma. Like it just didn't. It just didn't look right. Um, but as he progressed and he kind of figured out, this is what I want Ben Grimm to look like. Um, you saw it evolve into the thing that we all know and love today. Um, you know, 
and so that that's really cool to kind of witness and, and see that and and things and um you know so with kirby's art you had that and fantastic four came out in 61 so you have that and then you kind of he's developing his style and stuff over those years well then in 66 68 it might have been 68 like 66 or 68 um he was getting kind of you know pissed off at marvel and basically wanted you know more money and whatnot and they told him no uh, so at that point, Stan Lee basically told him, you know, in a nutshell, hey, do less work and make the same money. And so then that's where Kirby evolved again. And you now have like that, what people call that, that Kirby pop art, um, you know, that's current that, you know, made him as big and famous and whatnot as he is. And you can kind of see that style evolve again in the late 60s and into the early 70s. And so he was just a man that was constantly evolving and his creations and the characters that he came up with and the designs that he came up with, you know, he's the godfather of superheroes um, from a comics artist standpoint. And now that I'm older and reading this stuff and have a new appreciation for it, I can see why uh, so many comic artists have uh, such an affinity for the, for Jack Kirby, you know, Phil Hester this last weekend just did the 100 Kirby's, um, that he does on Kirby's birthday every, well, this is the last year, I guess, but you know, that he does on Kirby's birthday every year. He does, you know, for the eight, like this year would have been Kirby's hundredth birthday. So he did a hundred Kirby characters drawings and I can see why that's such a big deal to people now, because I have this new appreciation for the silver age. I mean, also talk about evolution from golden age to the silver age. We'd be remiss. If we don't bring up uh, John Romita senior. Correct. You know, starting off with that stuff. His stuff in, in Golden Sp Age. Oh, and then going to his Spider-Man. Oh my God, yeah. I love it. And you could see the the progression and change of his art through the decades, and how amazing it was. It was just like wow. Okay, so Red Skull. I know you started comics in a way earlier time before me and Tap. I think it was probably before Tap was born. Am I right, Tap? What year were you born? Eighty-two. Yeah, so Red Skull, you started... Wait, when were you born, Red? 73. Okay, so when did you start reading comics? Uh, what age? I mean, <laughs> it's probably roughly six or six. I want to say six. It was... I'm trying to remember. The issue that I got of Spider-Man came out in 79. That was issue... Oh, now that I'm on the spot, I can't think of the issue number. But it was 1979. I remember buying my first comic book of Spider-Man. It's like, I need comics in my life. So uh, that speaking of that, because I want to stay on Kirby for a second, because I want to get an opinion from you on this. Um, when would you say that you realized who Jack Kirby was? Oh, that was probably until I was like 12-ish. What was your exposure to it that made you realize who he was? Do you remember? Uh, I, was just, I, I just want to say it was just, you know, talking at comic book shops and with other kids. And, you know, I, I can actually remember at school kids bringing in Golden Age comics that we would pass them around to read. You know, it was just like, back then it was like, yeah, whatever. Okay, we're just sharing comics. Now I think about it today and it's like, wow, what were they? Fold thinking? them in half, <laughs> shove them in your back pocket, yes, sit on them. yes. Oh. There were actually I, I distinctly remember one kid, you know, had them folded up in his you know metal A team or Star Wars lunchbox, you know, whatever the heck it was at the time. <laughs> it's just like, wow, 
think back. It's like, oh, what were you thinking? But yeah, it was just basically reading the stuff and talking to other people. Then you come across it, and I, basically the same opinion as Tap was just kind of like, this kind of cartoony, but it was good stories. Then as I got older, it's like, oh yeah, you know what? Wow, I was reading this the whole time, and yeah, it's not bad. You grow, you grow into the appreciation of it as you get older. Yeah, that's very true. I'm, I'm yeah, actually, I agree. I'm actually kind of sad that it took me as long as it did to find the appreciation for the Silver Age. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm glad that I finally found it. It's just, it's sad that it took me as long as it did to find it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, going back to Kirby, um, for you, Red, uh, you know, I know you're a big Fantastic Four fan also. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> I was going to ask, uh, do you think, um, I guess, from when Kirby started to where he ended, what was the biggest difference to you, um, whether it be backgrounds, characters, or just design itself? It's kind of a little bit of everything. I mean, he just, everything kind of evolved through time. It's just like the most great artists, just throughout the time, things evolved and get better. Um, but I will say that it's, the, you know, reading a lot of FF, it's not so much the Silver Age that I that I keep finding myself saying that I'm enjoying more because like right now I'm reading uh, uh, John Byrne's run of stuff from the Bronze Age and I'm just finding that I'm enjoying the Bronze Age more than I'm enjoying the Silver Age to tell you the truth. Well, you're gonna have to wait a second because we're gonna get to the Bronze yeah, Age know. later, Mister. Yes, but I know, I know, <laughs> I know. But it's but I think that's because the Silver Age, as you know, even. As Matt was saying, you know, there's a lot of short arcs or independent stories within issues, and it was kind of rough. But as as it later developed and progressed into the Bronze Age, we got longer stories and things like that. But we'll dive into that a little bit. Very cool. So, um, I want to ask you, besides what? What's up? I was say you're not leaving Silver Age yet, are you? No, 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 no. Okay, no, no. okay. No, no, I was no, like, we no, got no. at least one more artist that we have to talk about before we leave Silver Age. We're not leaving Silver Age yet. I'm still in the Silver Age. We're still floating through the '60s. It's getting crazy, you know. Um, anyways, um, I was gonna say, you know, so many great people came out of the Silver Age, like people that created all these great characters. Now, uh, what were some artists? I think, what were some artists that you felt? maybe because uh, some stayed in the silver age and that's what they were known for but what were some of the ones that you guys feel um really started in the silver age and blossomed into the bronze age what books started off in silver and blossomed into bronze? what artists that started in the silver that really shot off the from the silver age started there and progressed so much that it blew up into the bronze age well well i, I can Go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna say I don't know. I can't say that he started in silver because, to be honest, I don't know when technically a lot of these people started. They probably started in the fifties, really in the golden age. Um, but somebody that comes to mind that I absolutely loved, you know, in the tail end of the silver age, that really blossomed into the beginning of the bronze age. Gene Colan. Um, mm-hmm. Gene Colan was just phenomenal, man. Um, you know, I'm a big Tom Mandrake fan, and Tom Mandrake said himself a lot of his style and, and influence was from Gene Colan. So when you go back and you look at those early Daredevil books and the Tomb of Dracula and, you know, the stuff that, you know, 
all those like it's just you can see it um and i love gene colin's style he has like this unmistakable style him and tom mandrick both like you might mix one or the other it might say oh it's a tom mandrick really it's gene colin or vice versa but you can look at one of their drawings and tell you right away that's a tom mandrick or a gene colin drawing um you know same kind of thing with like alex uh ross you know what i mean you see one of his you're like oh that's an alex ross like yeah they just have that distinguishable style that they do and it's it's awesome and gene colin's great so that would definitely be someone i would have to throw out there what about you, Red? Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to throw out Steve Ditko. That's who I was getting yes. to talk about. That's Ditko who I said we can't so leave good. Silver yeah. without talking about Ditko. Yeah, because you look at Ditko from the '50s, it was okay. Then in the '60s, it was like, holy crap! Yeah, Spider-Man. I mean, come Bronze on. Bronze Age. Yeah, and then we get in the Bronze Age. It's like, wow! You know, that's it, it's just he progressed continuously throughout the decades, but his Silver Age is like, oh my goodness. Yep. I mean, Ditko created for DC, you know, some of just, well, DC or Charlton comics as well, just some of the most, uh, you know, up and coming iconic characters, you know, such as like people, characters that people love today, like The Question, um, Shade the Changing Man, um, Hawk and Dove, you know, Dit, I mean, he co-created Spider-Man, you know, I mean, Ditko is just he's awesome and the cool thing mm-hmm. about Ditko is while he will never do an interview and he hasn't done interviews since like the 1960s um yeah. he he just he says he wants people to remember him for his work not for his personality or what he has to say very private guy um however he's still around he's like 89 years old if you write to Steve Ditko a handwritten letter to Steve Ditko he will respond to you. It's usually like a one sentence, two sentence response, but he will handwrite you a letter back. That's cool. You get a signature but, right then and there. Yeah, but, <laughs> but you know, you mentioned Spider Man, but let's, you can't forget about his Doctor. Oh Strange. yeah, 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 yeah. How can I forget Doctor Strange? <laughs> Holy his Doctor Strange stuff is so good, and it's so detailed. And I mean, the colors that they use for it and everything are so perfect and he sets the mood with the art and it's amazing agreed no because i mean he's i mean he not only did he create it but you know just the way he did it and you know i remember somewhere somebody or something i read i can't remember what it was comparing it a lot of it to a salvador dolly and it was just i mean you think back on it's like kind of yeah the way he did stuff it was similar to his work where that was obviously an inspiration for him somewhere some at some point yeah, I I need to go back. I had the the well, there's a couple Doctor Strange omnibuses out now, and I had the the first one, um, and I ended up trading it off for something else. And now I'm kind of like that was back before I really appreciated the silver, and now that I'm appreciating the silver, my omnibus collection of silver is growing extensively. So now I kind of need to get that Doctor mm-hmm. Strange one back. Did you read it back then? I kind of flipped through it a little bit. Like I said, that was back before I really had an appreciation for the Silver Age. Gotcha. Um, I didn't truly appreciate what I was looking at at the time. Um, like I said, it's recent, man, that I've really discovered my love for Silver. and um, It's a sad, sad ordeal that it took me this long. But Well, you know, Silver Age great. And I think that's what really shot off, you know, like you said, the superheroes and everything. But it was the precursor to probably my favorite art age 
and that is the Bronze Age. We had the introduction of people, you know, such as Jim Starlin, uh, Ron Friends, Mike Zeck, uh, so many different people that were just like super iconic. I mean, I'm sure Tap is sitting there like, why didn't you mention my guy? Who is someone for that from the Bronze Age for you that um, really sticks out? That came up in the Bronze Age? That really mm. kind of peaked in the Bronze Age. Man, I don't know. Because a lot of the guys I'm thinking of are considered modern um, mm-hmm. because Bronze Age yeah. ended in 85. So a lot of the guys that I'm that come to my mind that peaked in the Bronze Age and not silver... Um. Yeah, I don't know. A lot of mine are the ones I'm thinking of are modern. See, I'll, I got to touch a little bit on that because the Bronze Age was a difficult oh, period. Oh, Neil economy. Adams. Well, How the fuck could you forget that yeah. one? Neil Adams. <laughs> yep, Neil Adams. There you go. Definitely Neil Adams. Yeah. How could you but, forget Neil Adams? Stranko. Holy crap. But look at the difference between Silver Age current age and everything that's in the middle there with bronze age bronze age truly was a difficult time in comics you know marvel is going through this bankruptcy process the storylines weren't always that great there wasn't very many great notable things in my opinion from marvel side but dc i think owned the house in bronze age oh yeah you know they just dc was just wow in in that period um i mean i mean we've got our things like you know hulk 181 and uh ASM one twenty one. I was gonna say like you started the Claremont and um, burn run yeah. of X Men then, and it's mm-hmm. just like pfft, blow your mind stuff. Yeah, yeah. But uh, there, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, John Byrne, to, you know, and Claremont, you know, yeah, great, great Marvel stuff, but uh, in Bronze Age, but to me, the Bronze Age was lacking compared to Silver Age. You think so with the art? I think it was a tough time. I really do. Oh, man. I'm going to have to disagree with you there. I love the Bronze Age stuff. Man. I don't know what it is I don't about it. I, just something about the colors and the line work. Oh, the colors. The, yeah, the, 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 the 70s and the, colors in the and paper. early 80s. Oh, my gosh. The, to me, that was the best time was Bronze Age when it came to the paper and the size and the coloring and all that kind of stuff. I love it. The art is, like, amazing. Now, tap... Uh, I was gonna say, what was I gonna ask? Oh, um, so tap. Um, you know, sitting here with Bronze Age now. Um, what? I mean, even though I know we were talking earlier about like the span of it and all. Um, I know there's a lot of Spider-Man that you like. That's I guess maybe tail end of Bronze Age that you really like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of the Jerry Conway stuff and. Would you say that that stuff, I mean, because we started out, you know, like all the amazing Ditko stuff on Spider-Man. How do you feel? Yeah. How do you feel like Spider-Man art really evolved? Because I feel like it took off the character, like for the art style in the 70s more than the 60s. Yeah. I think it definitely evolved a lot. I mean, his costume maybe got a little bit sharper and, um... You got to think, too, his black suit stuff was, like, in 84, so... Yeah, the webbing kind of changed up a little... The webbing really changed up when McFarlane took over in the modern age. That's when the webbing truly Mm -hmm. revolutionized. But you can see a little bit of changes in the webbing and how it was drawn and, uh, you know, things like that. And some of the... Some of the characters and whatnot... um, 
back then were fun, like uh, the kangaroo and, you know, just the silly characters and things that you had back then. Um, you know, and you had the introduction of the Punisher and, uh, you know, and 129 and things like that. But yeah, I don't know. I would say it kind of evolved, maybe got a little bit sharper, a little bit sleeker um, compared to where it was in the 60s. So, Michael, um, for you, like, this is a time when you were growing up and you were getting into comics. This was mm-hmm. your period. You're like, you know, mm-hmm. your birth into comics and stuff. Yes. Um, you know, looking back at it, uh, at that time, what were some of, like, the hottest books in, I guess, your neighborhood or with your friends and you and stuff? Like, some of the hottest books that y'all looked at the art when it was, as it was coming out and being mm-hmm. going like, wow, this is great and i know you said you passed around the golden age stuff so yeah. you're, you're getting to see the comparison there but as a kid when it was coming out uh uh-huh. what to you what was the biggest like most hottest thing hottest thing hands down in bronze age when i was coming out gi joe real american hero larry hama's art and the playground i mean you were just yelling yo joe you read every issue you were collecting the toys reading reading the comics watching the show everything and but the comics that was, I I'm telling you that was the center stage for for us back then. You knew every panel, every word of everything that was going on, and that's all you ever talked about in the in the comic area. It was GI Joe that was number one. Then we you know we would talk maybe other things, you know, Cap and Spider Man, but GI Joe that was it. Every boy, I'm telling you, in the in eighties, that. That's what we had. That 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 was it. <laughs> That's cool. So you would besides GI Joe. I mean, you brought up like Spider Man, Captain. There wasn't anyone really jumping around for any of the uh, the superheroes. I would say superheroes. Uh, Justice League. That was the. Uh, I want to say probably the other big hot thing. See, that's cool. And that, once again, I mean, I'm not really touching on a whole lot of DC stuff because you know I'm the Marvel guy. But um, I mean, think about like characters like Swamp Thing was bronze age right tap yeah swamp thing was bronze it was um, and that was something totally different there was like a whole psychedelic vibe going on through the 70s i mean even with that stuff with jim starlin and his cosmic stuff um but no sticking with swamp thing what's some of the stuff in swamp thing that you think really stuck out because i know you like bronze age swamp thing yeah no the the art in swamp thing i mean you got bernie wrightson you know um mm-hmm. who's like another amazing um amazing horror style um artist similar to like a gene cole and tom mandrake kind of guy uh bernie wrightson is is phenomenal he actually did a really amazing specter cover that i utilized for uh the cover on my custom bind actually is a bernie wrightson cover it's just so freaking epic um so yeah i mean you know you got Bernie Wrightson, and and that was huge in the 70s and Bronze Age. And um, someone else that I thought of as far as Bronze Age goes that's uh, that we can't we can't forget about. Um, and Russ, you're gonna agree with me on this one, I know for a fact you will. Mike Plug, oh, yeah. Man Thing, Ghost Rider, Werewolf by Night, uh, you know, all of those in the 70s was just. Oh, they were so good. I haven't read Man Thing. I can't speak on Man Thing, but you know, the it's so good, dude. Ghost Rider and Werewolf by Night. I've actually read some of the Bronze Age Ghost Rider. I was like, I want to go back and read like you know the nineteen seventies Ghost Rider. Such a good book. Um, Werewolf by Night. I've been reading a lot of that lately too. 
such a good book and the art in it is freaking awesome I would say that the 70s really had, I think, the peak in comic horror art. I mean, yes. the Eerie Magazine coming yes. out, creepy, everything else. Tales um, from the Crypt, Vault of Horror. Uh, Charleston. Yeah, there's so many. Yeah. There's God, there were so many in the 70s. Yeah, no, there was just a bunch of... And then the whole underground zine scene and everything else that was going on through the 70s as well. I mean, it was just this weird, unique horror phase where i guess i don't know it, it was weird because like you said uh marvel put out a bunch of i guess like i would i don't know if you want to count ghost rider in the 70s as like a horror themed book or anything it actually but, was man. man if you've read it it actually it it was definitely supernatural horror themed um dude it's kind of freaky i i've read some of it now and i'm like it's kind of that's oh, kind of freaky. Like it's got some some stuff in there. Definitely. So, Red, when you no. were a kid, you didn't read any of the uh, the horror stuff. No, no, not really. It was the GI Joe. Another another big one that I failed to mention also was the Star Wars stuff that came out. Oh, I can uh, imagine. Yeah, and that was with uh, Howard Jenkins. You know, he was doing some of that stuff. If memory serves correctly, you know that was huge deal in uh, Bronze Age. Now. We're gonna we're gonna finish up on the Bronze Age here. On a note, and by the end of the Bronze Age, I you know looking back at it now and reading all the Bronze Age stuff that I've read, in my head, I can't figure out how some of it evolved into the '90s stuff, like why it became so popular because it was such a drastic change, like. The, because the you know the late Bronze Age stuff was way it, it was good like the, I mean you had your black suit Spider Man you had your whole Secret War stuff going on mm-hmm. um, you know you, what you had in DC back then uh, I, I guess it was uh, was that when when did Crisis come out oh God I can't remember eighty five eighty six. Yeah, I don't know. It's Something. somewhere in their mid-80s. So you had all that good stuff, too, going on. And it's like George Perez, right? Ooh, George Perez. Yeah, can you forget oh, about George? Oh, he's so good. He's so good. And so you had all this God, great there's stuff so many going people on. to mention, man. We're going to forget so many people, and people are going to be like, why didn't I you know, mention right? this person? Yeah. yeah. Well, you just If you have someone that we, we, we didn't mention that you need to throw out there and you just have to get it out there, just leave it a comment to us on Facebook or Twitter or on this podcast. And we'll acknowledge it. We'll look at them, and we will be like, hey, sorry. But, you know, like I was saying, moving on into what I I don't consider, I mean, they consider it the modern. I feel like there should have been a cutoff already, but it's still the modern age. Um, you get the guys, you know, your Jim, your Jim Lees and your uh, Rob Liefelds and your Todd McFarlands and your everyone else and that wants Dave to draw Gibbons. these... And I want to draw these giant people. Uh, and to me, I don't understand how it progressed into that. I mean, I understand you have the, you know, the comic artists that I guess have this idea and they want to put it on paper or whatever. But for the fans to just like grab at it and stuff, I, I don't understand how they made that big of a jump. And that's why I'm hoping that you two can explain to me why was it that big muscles and shoulder pads became so popular? Well, anything we're going to say to you, it's p- 
purely speculation on our part because we weren't well, around. What I'm saying you is know, for we you. We have no idea. Well, I'm going to throw out my two cents then. Because one, it was actually a style, a clothes style to start with. Shoulder pads were huge. I had shoulder pads and all my sweaters. Everybody <laughs> did. It, it, was, it was honestly the thing back then. Those belly to, shirts, the football belly netted shirts. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it was a clothing style. It was the times. And it influenced, you know, obviously into art. But you also think about, you know, a lot of those artists that we've been talking about, a lot of them were had had basically declined. They they stopped drawing. They passed away. Whatever it was, we got new artists come in who want to make their stamp. They want to be the next, you know, King Kirby. They wanted to be the next big name. So let me do something that's different. And so they did something different. Also with the t- with the times. And that is, in my opinion, what brought about such that big dramatic change that we saw in art. Because also think about it, some of those artists like, let's say, Liefeld, you know, how old was he when he started, you know, in the current age doing stuff? He was young. And this is what he knew from the media and watching TV and the time that he was born. This, this was what influenced the change. Well, another thing that I noticed um, that I, I feel like is a weird correlation that not a lot of people bring up from it is um, I think Stan Lee's last Marvel, Marvel comic that he wrote was like in 1984, I think. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I think it was like first that. appearance of She-Hulk, I'm pretty sure. Um, and so I think it was since I don't know if it was Savage or Sensational, number one. It was one of the two. I think it's Sensational. I'm not sure. Either way, um, yeah, that was like his last book. And I mean, he did some random DC stuff in the night, but I mean, I don't really consider that like, you know, something he took serious. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So at that time, he left and he became, took a more hands off approach from Marvel. Now, Marvel was huge at this time. Like, coming through the 90s, Marvel was ginormous. You know what I mean? And. He, I guess he stepped away, and then they brought in this new talent, and then everything just kind of changed. I don't, I mean, you had Tom DeFalco, editor in chief. Um, I guess he was coming off of uh, Jim Shooter or whatever, and uh, it was just like free reign, wild, wild west thing, like you were saying, where it was like, I guess they were trying to keep up with the times, and they had this new crowd and everything, but they just brought in like some of the youngest cats you could possibly think of at the time, you know, and they shake uh, things up. Yeah. Well, you got to think, man. The guy, those guys are also like that crowd or that area was almost like the uh, the rebels, the bad boys of comics, so to speak. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? That's really the the look and the vibe that they were going for. Is that they wanted to kind of? That's how they were going to make their mark. Is you know they're the bad yeah. boys of comics. And uh, it worked for them, obviously. But I think that's why they're like, well, how can we be different? Well, let's, you know, aside from the style, like that's shoulder pads are in style, mullets are in style, things like that. Let's make giant muscles and like big hulking guys and like make them scary and make things darker and like big drooling teeth and, you know, this, that, and the other. And that's disproportionate women that look sexy. Well, I think that, well, (laughs) yeah. But, um,. Yeah, I think that was just part of like how like them saying how can we make our mark? You know, well, we're gonna be bad boys. Let's blow stuff up out of proportion. Let's make it. I mean, there's a really funny uh, clip that I saw recently on YouTube 
of uh, Todd McFarlane and Rob Liefeld drawing Overkill um, while Stan Lee <laughs> yeah, is roasting Stan, yes. them. Yes. Yeah. It's hilarious. Because it it Stan, you know, he's old school, obviously. So he's sitting there watching them draw this and he's sitting there questioning everything that they're saying to him. And he's like, why does he look like this? And, you know, what is the story behind this character? And what, like, he's questioning him on everything they're doing. Cause, like, to him and his style, he's like, none of this makes sense. Why are you doing this? Um, and it's, it's hilarious. And he also told Rob Feld, let the adult speak, <laughs> which was also yeah. really oh. funny. Oh, it's a That's funny, good. funny clip, man. I strongly recommend finding it. It's from like the early 90s. It's super funny. But yeah, when you talk about current age, you know, the first thing that comes into my mind is the first greatest current age book that came out, um, The Watchmen. And you think of Dave Dave Gibbons' art in that. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, yeah, it's reminiscent of some of the that the art from that time period, but it wasn't over, you know, accentuated. It, it was still great art. No, definitely. And, I mean, you have to go back and you have to even look at the artist. I mean, because Marvel was doing the Ginormo thing, whatever. But DC still stood pretty traditional, kind of, throughout um, throughout the 90s. I mean, you even had issues where, I mean, like some of the old... It seemed like a lot of the older Marvel guys swapped over to DC for a little bit. And then were just, like, chilling and then coming back. But a lot of time it was more free reign, too. Because they got to do back and forth quite a bit with that. Um, but no, I mean, you have your, like, Death of Superman and your, uh, Nightfalls and everything else, and I mean, the art in that was really good, but it wasn't, like, super over-exaggerated, minus your, like, Azrael or anything. No, they just made really weird costume choices in DC, um, such as when Superman became, like, like, literally electric blue Superman, um, you know, when... A lot of people love it, but when Aquaman lost his hand and he had a hook for a hand, and uh, you know Superman, King of the Mullets, um, you know, yeah. So DC, while they may not have drew like over hulking Rob Liefeld style X Force characters, they uh, they made some interesting costume choices. <laughs> for sure, I'll agree with that. So now we're gonna move on to the other part of the 90s i mean we just discussed a whole bunch of big two but things didn't really shoot off i think art wise in the 90s i think the most of the iconic art that you think of when you think of 90s art is one of red's favorite companies image so red skull or michael what would you say is something that makes uh images art style and the choices uh pop out well for me you basically there's only really two artists that I really enjoyed in the early 90s with Image, you know, Todd McFarlane, which, you know, come on, current age, Todd McFarlane, you know, Spider-Man 300, and then his Spawn stuff, and Jim Lee. Uh, those two are, the, for me, the big artists through Image that you look at their stuff and it was like, really good. <laughs> yeah. Not Mark Silvestri or... Silvestri Eric was hit Larson. Um, hit and miss again. So was you know, like I mean, because you look I, at you look, you look at Savage Dragon, some of that early Savage Dragon, it just didn't appeal to me for some reason. I don't know why, but the the Savage Dragon today it does. I think that something that you could really put in there that would make you put into perspective. Tap, um, I think maybe for Red at the time and why he would think that is uh, 
take like a savage dragon number one cover and put it next to a spawn number one cover and you could be like when you're sitting at the store well, trying to pick something out yeah. which one are you gonna probably pick that's fair i mean it is mcfarland so i mean that is it's, fair because he was gritty it was like the, the panels and everything in there it was just like whoa but uh yeah no i will definitely say that so when they you would say like you said you you liked uh you know jim lee and um todd mcfarland now todd mcfarland his marvel stuff to image stuff was worlds of difference like oh my gosh uh whenever he did the spawn stuff it was just like amazing i mean he just he basically did the whole loose. story yeah he yeah. was free to do whatever and he told the story mostly through the art mm-hmm. um i think that even though the 90s produced some of the most weird art i think it's probably the most influential and evolutionary when it comes to comic art mm-hmm. would y'all say would y'all yeah. agree yeah yeah i mean we may not like it but it influenced everybody it probably made the biggest change in waves in the comic art industry mm-hmm. so uh, another early 90s i have to throw out there alex ross oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Oh my God. he got his break that's what i'm saying like whenever there's, we come to the idea of evolution that's the man there's only yeah. one alex ross man i don't know mm-hmm. like like i said he has such an iconic style it's you you see an alex ross uh drawing print whatever and and you see it and you immediately go that's yes. alex ross that's like alex there's ross. no yep. denying it like mm-hmm. you just look at it and you immediately know boom it's alex ross like there's no there's no question yeah so i mean coming through the 90s some of alex ross stuff you know like um kingdom come and whatnot uh, that came out on the scene and uh, tap. Were you into comics by then? I was, but um, I didn't have an opportunity. Like how I grew up, I didn't have an opportunity to like go to a comic book store every week, or um, even had money um, a lot when I was a kid to be able to buy comics. Uh, so a lot of the ways that I bought comics was like when I would like mow yards and things like that. I would go spend mm-hmm. all my money on comics, um, but. I wouldn't necessarily be at a comic book store. I might be at, you know, a Walmart or a grocery store and I have to grab whatever's available on the spinner racks. And so for me, I was never able to complete like full story arcs. It was all very like random, random, a lot of random Wolverine and Ghost Rider is really what it was for me. (laughs) Um, I would grab any Wolverine and Ghost Rider that I could find. Um, and it was it was all random issues, so I never was able to actually collect full arcs or anything like that. That's cool. So, uh, you like you said at the time, then because I asked Red earlier, whenever he started reading as a kid, some of the things he so you would say that the ones that popped out to you that were hot among your friends and stuff would be oh, dude, my friends didn't my friends didn't read comics. I was the only one. Oh, really? Yeah, I, even to this day. I, like my friends that I hang out, I don't have. I have zero friends that read comics. I think. Well, I take that back. Besides have, us, I, right? Well, yeah, but I mean, like you know, people that I hang out with or that I see on a daily basis. Um, Sucks, doesn't it? Yeah, it none does. of them read comics. I take. I have one friend that reads a few comics here and there, so I take that back. He does read some. Um, 
But uh, aside from that, I have no friends that read comics. I've never had friends that read comics. Uh, when I got into um, junior high and high school, I had nobody. Like I quit reading basically because it wasn't cool. Um, I because I had nobody that read comics, and so I had nothing I could relate to. It's rough. I'm feel you. I have one friend that actually like truly reads comics here. And he, I actually got him into it um, maybe like four or five months ago. And so it's a fairly new thing. But now he's like head over heels about it. So it's cool. I have someone to talk to comics about. And he's a Marvel oh, guy. Cool. So, yeah. Yeah. I, but. Not I. Not you. That's sad. So, okay. So we've gone through our whole 90s thing. Uh, you know, it, obviously it changed. Um, what are your favorite current artists right now? Current artists? You got Mike Diodato. You have yeah. Um, you got uh, 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 oh my gosh, brain fart. Um, I like uh, Pepe Larraz a lot. R- still, Ryan Pepe's Otley. great. Oh my god, Ryan Otley. It's another one. I'll let Red name off his, and then I'll name off some. No, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I'm 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 brain farting all of a sudden. Just... Um, obviously Alex Ross is up there. Um, someone who I absolutely love, uh, Clayton Crane. Oh yeah. He's good. Yeah. Yeah, I love Clayton Crane. Um, Tom Mandrake, obviously. As anyone knows, I'm, I'm a huge Tom Mandrake fan. Um, Eddie Barrows. I love Eddie Barrows as well. Um, God, I don't know. Current. I haven't been. I haven't, I haven't. Oh yeah, I like Scotty Young. His stuff, Scotty Young. But I, 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 I like Scotty Young. But I wouldn't like Scotty Young on, on a, Spider-Man. on like Spider Man or something. Like I wouldn't. I wouldn't appreciate it. But like on I Hate Fairyland, it's amazing. Yeah. Um. What about Zdarsky? Mm, eh, what about okay. Ryan Brown? The- I like Ryan Brown a lot. I was going to say someone that we missed, and I mean, it's, well, I'm surprised someone hasn't named it yet. Alex but, uh, Mike Allred. Oh, yeah, yeah, Mike Allred's yeah. great. Okay. Mike Allred's amazing. Yep, no, Mike Allred, Alex Maleev, Um Fiona Staples. Oh, uh, Mark Teixeira. How the hell could I forget that one? Mark Teixeira, dude. You know what's funny is we name off all these people, right? And, I mean... Uh, a lot of these names, you know, have done stuff for Greg Marvel Smallwood. or anything else. Yeah, that do stuff for Marvel and stuff. And um, we also sit here and we're like, uh. So well, it's we hard when you put people on the that. when you put people on the spot like that. It's hard to be like, yeah. oh, where are we going with this? Like, you know, Phil. I'm Hester. getting somewhere with this. Trust. I me. love Phil Hester. Um, yeah, I mean, it's when you put somebody on the spot. I'm like, oh, I, my mind goes blank. So. What I'm getting at here is we've named off all these great artists and stuff. Um, would you say that the art is the most important part of a comic book currently? Um, it has to be a blend of the two. Yeah, I would say opinion. I would say blend. See, when I was a kid, it was all about the art. Mm-hmm. When I got a little bit older, it was more story driven. Now I'm at a point where it has to be a really good mix because I can read a yeah. book that has really good story but really bad art and it takes me out of it. 
Um, I and vice versa. I can read a book that the story is kind of, eh, but the art is just amazing to look at, and I can get you know instantly hooked. So it's yeah, I agree. It definitely has to be like a fifty-fifty blend. Yeah, I mean, there's very very few cases where the artist is so great that it can fix some of the writing. Very few, you know, but it has it has to be mixed. It just does. Yeah. I mean, we met some artists and things, um, you know, at uh, uh, Novacon. Novacon that were like, you know, names that like I'd heard of, like Chris Campana. Like I had heard mm-hmm. of him, but I'd heard of him through other podcasts and things and really, really funny guy on top of that. But his art is amazing. Uh, Jim O'Reilly, who's not even doing comic books, he's doing, uh, you know, really he's doing like sketches and commissions and sketch cards and things for tops. He's not even technically working on books, but his art is phenomenal, man. Uh, me and him are actually friends on Facebook now and his dude, I can't Rusty, I cannot wait for you to see this stuff. It is so good. Um, he draws one of the best night crawlers I've ever seen. Very cool. Uh, it's so fucking good. Um, so yeah, there's like people like that too that are up and coming that you've never heard of. Um, that are just nailing it, blowing it out of the park. And, you know, hopefully one day we'll get to see them on, on their own terms or on big books or something so they can get their names out there because their art's just wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. N- now, would you say, because I know... With all the great artists that we've named, there's also a bad, a bunch of bad artists currently. Too. I'm not gonna now, go down that road. We're not gonna go down that path. But I wanted to ask: Would you say that there is um, more a good ba- a balance of good artists right now, or more of a balance of bad artists? It's which, all. Which would you say is the majority? It's all on personal preference, so mm-hmm. it's it's really hard it to say. Um, okay. Because I know people that love uh, what's his name, David Aja. I can't stand it. It's just, well, it's just not for my me. thing is it also depends on the book. Cause like I said, Scotty young, perfect example. If I saw Scotty young drawing an X-Men book, I'd be like, mm, not feeling it. But I draw see Scotty young drawing. I hate Fairyland or, you know, something like that. And I'm like, yes, please. Like it's, it depends on the book. There's also books that, uh, you know, Jeff Lemire does. He he draws as well as writes. Oh yeah. And like Sweet Tooth, for instance. Okay, let's throw out Sweet Tooth. If I were to see that style of art in an X Men book or in a Captain America book or Avengers or whatever the case may be, I would not be interested in the Avengers or what. I'd be like, Mm-mm-mm, not feeling it. But in Sweet Tooth, it works. It looks awesome. It fits the story well. Like so, I mean, it really depends on the book as well as personal preference. Yeah, it's like okay, Cliff cool. Chang. I love his art. Oh, I love it. Yes. I love it. I yep. love it. But yep. I've heard people say, "Oh my God, this is terrible." What? What is it? I'm like, "Are you kidding me?" Like you said, personal preference. It really is what it comes down to. I used to hate Mike Allred's art because of the covers I would see of when he first started uh, Silver Surfer. And I was like, oh, he's like wearing eyeliner and he has like weird lips and all this stuff. And then eventually I actually opened up and looked at the interiors and got used to it. And now I think it's like so amazing. And that's another thing. Like 
you may not like it at first, but if you give it a chance and give it a few issues, um, just because it's something that you wouldn't char- characteristic characteristically uh, see for that character, like Tap, you brought up with Scotty Young on an X Men book or something like that. Um, over time, it can get better, or you can just get used to it. Sometimes it's just a a slide of the hand, you know, tricking your mind. It's like, this is not my traditional character art. I don't like this. Mm-hmm. When really, eventually, you could turn it around and be like, okay, maybe this isn't that bad. Yep. There's also books I've done before where I, like, when I first started it, I was like, man, this is horrible. And then I, like, tucked it away, didn't want to read it. And then, like, two years later, I go back to it, and I'm like, this art's actually pretty good. What was I thinking back then? Yeah. 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 You know, another artist, I can never remember his full name. Uh, I just remember, Assad, I just can never remember his last name. He did a bunch of work in with uh, Secret Wars and a bunch of other stuff since then. And I'll tell you, I absolutely love his stuff. It is just great. But I, I've, I've seen so many reviews, people like, eh, he's on this book? Oh, no. But yeah. uh, it's just, yeah. And it's all personal preference. preference. It really is. You can't sure. please everyone. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's going to stop our evolution thing here of art. Now, is there anything that y'all just wanted to talk about real fast? I mean, probably real quick, five minutes or so. Yeah, I do actually have something that breaking news. Well, it'll be a week old news by the time this drops. But as of recording, uh, breaking news, which is um, so Marvel, they're doing their big legacy drop, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Coming up in October, November. And... uh, well, along with it, Marvel is deciding to do, once again, those gimmicky covers that everyone loves, those lenticular covers. However, tons of comic book stores are boycotting Marvel and their lenticular covers for the legacy. Uh, the reason being is that Marvel's making it very difficult for comic stores to get these lenticular covers. They are telling the comic stores, um, initially they told the comic book stores, um, you have to order, I don't remember the exact numbers, one number I read was like 200 issues of this in order to get 20 issues of the lenticular cover. Um, And the stores are like, like, let's use Iron Man for instance, You you have to order 200 issues of Iron Man in order to get 20 issues of the lenticular cover. And these stores are like, I'm not going to sell 200 issues of Iron Man. Like, you're you're making me buy stock that I will never sell just to get a gimmick cover that my clientele wants. Like, you're, you're kind of screwing the brick-and-mortar stores by doing this. Yeah. So, because of it, they lowered it a little bit on a couple books, but not all books. So, like, Iron Man is still, like, 200 issues or something like that. But, like, on their uh, lower-end titles, like, the ones, like, not the big-name ones that are that are going to be doing, they're like, okay, these ones, you only have to buy 100 issues instead of 200. Uh, but Iron Man and Thor and stuff, you still have to buy 200 issues. And it's just, it's really, really screwing over um, a lot of these brick-and-mortar stores, which, in turn, is kind of screwing over the consumer who wants these lenticular covers because nobody's going to have them because their stores are not ordering enough books to get these lenticular covers. So then uh, are you kind of sort of not only that, but like these mom and pop comic book shops, right, that aren't participating because they can't afford to have 200 issues of a book sitting on a shelf that's never going to sell. 
compared to say like Mile High Comics, compared to say to uh, uh, oh god, why am I drawing the blank? The big one in Midtown Comics. Midtown. Um, you know, you have these like ginormous worldwide world. You know, the whatever the word I'm looking for is known um, comic book stores that are probably going to order a crap ton of issues to get these lenticular covers because they and then charge a premium oh yeah for sure and they have like you know these giant stores that they can do that with they can afford to order more books to get the gimmick whereas like these mom and pop shops can't Mm -hmm. so it's it's definitely a rough deal yeah and as of right now there was what 53 different ones that they've announced correct is there an x-men one yes yeah i'm pretty sure oh snap and Give these lenticular covers, I saw the lenticular cover for Iron Man. It was a really cool cover, uh, but at the same time, it's it's not fair that you're making these shops buy 200% more stock just so you can say, oh, look at us, look at our... Because it's like a way for Marvel to be like, oh, look at our sales numbers. We we announced Legacy, and now look at our, our sales skyrocketed. No, your sales didn't skyrocket. You screwed people. Like, that's what happened. It's, you know... You're I think the biggest I, hype behind Legacy is going to be just because they're bringing back a bunch of old characters that everyone misses. So, All right, so I found the list. I'll read through it super fast, okay? All New Wolverine, The Amazing Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man, Renew Your Vows, America, An Astonishing X-Men, Avengers, uh, Scarlet Spider, Black Bolt, Black Panther, Cable, Captain America, Captain Marvel, Champions, Daredevil, Defenders, Despicable Deadpool, Doctor Strange, The Falcon, Generation X, Guardians of the Galaxy, Hawkeye, Iceman, Incredible Hulk, Invincible Iron Man, Iron Fist, Jean Grey, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, Marvel 2-in-1, The Mighty Thor, Monsters Unleashed, Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, Moon Knight, Miss Marvel, Old Man Logan, Peter Parker, Spectacular Spider-Man, The Punisher, Royals, Secret Warriors, She-Hulk, Spider-Gwen, Spider-Man, Spider-Man vs. Deadpool, Spirits of Vengeance, Thanos, The Unbeatable Squirrel The Unbelievables, Gwenpool, U.S. Avengers, Uncanny Avengers, Venom, Weapon X, X-Men Blue, X-Men Gold. You said Marvel 2-in-1. Yes. What? That's cool. Yep. Marvel 2-in-1, issue number one. But you won't get that lenticular cover. No. That sucks. Well, tell Marvel to change their fucking business practice, man. I mean, it's it's crap. They're screwing people over. And it's just a way for them to to say, hey, look at our sales. We we beat DC. We beat Image. We're the number one for the... No, you're really not because these brick-and-mortar stores that ordered 200 copies, did they sell all 200 copies? Probably not. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, it's just... It might even out, though, if you upsell your uh, lenticular that you get, but then it's going to be a super expensive lenticular. But Yeah, and not Mm -hmm. only that, though, too, but a lot of comic shops, though, there are some that will charge a premium for the gimmicky covers and variants and things like that because they're like, well, I can. But there's also a lot of shops out there that don't believe in that. There's a lot of shops out there, like, you know, like... For instance, hardcover books that are out of stock. Out of print, out of stock. You can't find them anywhere. They're going for $400 on eBay, right? People are paying $300 and $400 on eBay for these out of print books. You can, every once in a blue moon, either do your homework or walk into a comic shop and find one in the wild, and they're selling it at cover or under. They know it's out of print. They know it's out of stock, but they're still going to charge you at cover price because they believe that it's wrong to up the price on people. Yep. And I, for one, appreciate the hell out of comic book stores that do that. I think that's very awesome of you. Um, but yeah, they, you know, it's, 
I can tell you right now the hot ones that are going to look out for that are going to be the high price ones. Cable 150, the Falcon number one, uh, Marvel 2 and 1 number one, the Mighty Thor number 700, and uh, Spirits of Vengeance number one. Those are the ones right there. I'm going to, obviously because the issue numbers, they're going to be the hot ones. Wait, you say Spirits of Vengeance is coming back? That yes. sounds cool. Oh, one wow. of five. It's a five issue. Well, we're getting a Marvel two and one, and we're getting a Spirits of Vengeance. That's old mm -hmm. school. I figured yeah. it would be a mini. No, I'm stoked about that Spirits of Vengeance. Though. And and the, the Falcon number one. That'll be those those number ones, and then those other key, the 150 and the uh, 700. Well, not only that, but um, another one that a lot of people are excited for is uh, Invincible Iron Man. I know it's not like a numbering, but a lot of people are very stoked for that one, and the lenticular for that one is really awesome. Very cool. I'm gonna have to go back and look at these because now you got me curious. So yeah, man, it sucks. You know, Marvel is. I don't know. I don't like it. I well, just. I think it's crap. And hopefully, by the time is. that this airs, they've changed their mind and realize, hey, we're buttholes, and they, uh, <laughs> you know, they they change everything. Well, we can only hope for oh, the best. Hey, tap. Just so you know, the the Marvel Legacy number one is a 50 page one shot. Hey, and gotcha. it's by Jason Aaron and Isad Rubik. That's the last name I couldn't remember. Rubik, Isad Rubik. They're do they're there they're pulling go. a DC yeah. Rebirth is what they're doing. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it is. Although I think Rebirth is like eighty pages, but yeah. Yep. Following the release of uh, Marvel Legacy Number One, many Marvel comic series will revert to their classic numbering system. Sounds a Result. lot like Rebirth. Yep, Super for their relaunching series. Yep. Sounds a be lot like Rebirth. The only mm -hmm. difference, though, and I don't know what Marvel's doing. I haven't read it yet, obviously. But what DC did, though, is that they have this big overarching story, mainly taking place in Titans and um, Batman and whatnot with the... Or not Batman, Detective. With the, uh, you know, who has the button, you know, type thing. But uh, I wonder, is Marvel going to have, like, a big overarching thing like that, you know? Like, maybe, like, the Watcher comes back. He's not really dead. I don't know. I'm, I'm just reading this more. You know how DC had Rebirth? They're calling this Rebirth for Marvel. Marvel Legacy is the whole thing. That's the whole renumbering system again. Well, it'll be and we're not going to have any events with it too, because remember they said they're not going to have an event for like, for like 18, eighteen months. months yeah, eighteen. It'll be interesting. So I'm, be cool. I'm interested. I'm definitely intrigued by by it. I just think you know, and I read a lot of the new stuff either digitally until it comes out in omnibus form or what have you. So I'll I'll read this all digitally. So I don't care about the lenticular covers or anything. But for those people that do collect and do care, it's a crap situation for them. I hope Marvel turns it around. Uh, but I am intrigued by some of these books that have been mentioned, like Spirits of Vengeance um, right. and Moon Knight. I'm excited to see where that one goes as well. Um, and anything Donny Cates is doing. I mean, we know he's going to be doing Thanos and, and Doctor Strange. And, you know, in the beginning of Doctor Strange, Loki's the Sorcerer Supreme. So that could be interesting. Like, I'm definitely intrigued by where Marvel's going on a lot of these books. So, Yeah, and I, I'm putting my money that the next big Marvel event is going to be Thanos. I don't know why. I just feel it. Well, I think it's going to be, too. Movie stuff. Well, that, and they've been hyping them up now for yep. like a year mm -hmm. or two. So I'm fine with that. Y'all know I'm completely fine with that. Yeah. The more Thanos, the better. 
few and Donny Cates. So. Oh yeah, Donny Cates is doing it, yep. so I guess I'm okay. Yeah. Plus Donny Cates, he really got me excited for it. Where he's talking yeah. about, you know, like this one legit gave me nightmares. Yeah, and he said he's going to revamp a lot of stuff uh, that we used to see in the Cosmic Universe that me and uh, Nova were super stoked on. He was talking about uh, Annihilation, and he was talking about Jim Starlin. So right then and there, you know that uh, he has some good influences and um, probably a good jumping point and some ideas. And if you don't know what we're talking about, you better check out the last week's podcast. For sure. <laughs> but speaking of interviews, we have someone coming up who... Uh, is a really, really big deal in the Marvel world, and he shaped a lot of that 90s stuff that we were talking about with his writing. Yes, so, we will meet Mr. Nitzias. everyone it's that special time of the podcast where we talk to a writer or artist that we uh that we cherish and and like so today we've got a very special guest who wrote for me personally one of my favorite team-up books of all time cable and deadpool uh fabian itzieza welcome to the show how's it going not too good kudos on pronouncing kudos on pronouncing (laughs) properly yeah it's um it's one i've battled with in the past and I uh, I listened to some other interviews where you were in just in case to do some prep work. Um, it's the Batman oh, in me. I thought it was. I was just going to give you the credit because anybody with a cable and Deadpool fan clearly is one notch above the average human. <laughs> <laughs> but for awesome. people who um, who may be out there and don't know you, or you know, are just getting into comics, um, why don't you give them a little rundown of what what you've worked on and how you got into the industry? Uh, got into the industry in 1985, which is 1785 as much as far as most people seem <laughs> to be concerned. Um, working at Marvel Comics was Marvel's advertising manager um, for several years. That meant I was responsible for all the house ads that appeared in the comics, the promotional posters that used to go to direct market shops, uh, a slew of flyers and co-op ads that Marvel used to do back then for direct market uh, retail promotions. Yes, there used to be direct market retail <laughs> promotions. Um, uh, convention giveaways, uh, panel presentations, public speaking for Marvel, all this kind of stuff. Um, I started selling my writing as a freelance writer while I was on staff at Marvel in 1987. Uh, first comic book I sold, um, well, first comic book that was published, I should say, was Cyforce number nine which was part of the New Universe line at that time. Uh, continued to, to do writing more and more while I still worked on staff. Moved over to staff editorial position. I believe it was like 1990, I think. I lose track of that one. Um, and I was responsible for Marvel's Young Reader lines, which included things like Alf and Ren and Stimpy and Barbie. Um, but I also edited uh, things like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures and Wonder Man and Hellstorm and a whole bunch of other weird stuff. Um, I basically told the editor-in-chief, Tom DeFalco, I don't want to edit books like I write books, and I was writing all superhero books at that time, uh, pretty much. So he said, no problem, and he gave me he gave me this weird mix of mostly licensing books, um, but it was a great learning experience. Uh, I was an editor on staff until roughly 1995. Then I became a freelance writer because uh, I was doing way too much of that. 
um, and the office job was taking up way too much time. Uh, so I did that for a year before I realized how bored I was as a freelance writer and became a claims editor in chief and then president and publisher. Uh, I folded that company in 1998 and have pretty much been a freelance writer in comics, animation, video games, intellectual property development um, ever since. Been around the block there, and then so there's the there's the there's as brief a summary as you're gonna get for thirty <laughs> years doing <laughs> oh, very cool. Yeah, there's a huge list of, of credits under your name. Um, just oh, Googling that's right. Well, we forgot the writing. Yeah, you guys do the writing <laughs> credits because I just, yeah. it's, I honestly, I've written over a thousand comics. So the yeah. answer is, if you don't know who I am, I've written a lot of comics. <laughs> <There you go>. <laughs> <laughs> Chances are you've read one here or there sometime. At least at one point or another, a character <laughs> exactly. that you have read, I have written, whether it be at Marvel or DC at this point. Yep. So yeah. writing all as many characters and books and things that you have, is there a character that you've ever not written that you would still like to write? Um, still like to write? Um, or have you kind yeah, of done there, it I mean, well, the, it depends on how you say that. I mean, there's, I've written characters of both Marvel and DC, whether it be one issue or two issues here or there, that I never got to write as a regular series. And there's a huge difference between getting to write a character you know, for a couple issues or a guest appearance or something like that versus writing a monthly book of that character. Um, at Marvel, I always wanted to write Captain America monthly. I always wanted to write um, Doctor Strange monthly. So those always would have been really interesting opportunities had I, you know, had that chance. Um, at DC, I've always wanted to write uh, Hawkman as a monthly book, always since I was like in college. Um, and never got the chance, although I did get a chance to write Hawkman in, in the Trinity weekly series. Uh, I have never gotten a chance to write him as a monthly book, which is, quite frankly, to the shame and detriment of both Hawkman and DC. Well, you see, you mentioned Hawkman in college and stuff. That uh, makes me wonder, uh, growing up, even in high school, middle school, whenever you actually got into comics, what were the comics that you grew up reading? Um, I, I, was, I started reading when I came to the United States. I was four years old. My brother was seven years old and we, we recognized Batman and Superman comics from the TV shows we had been watching in Argentina. And at that time it was the 1950s TV Superman TV show in the 1940s Batman movie serial that were running on television in, in Buenos Aires, Argentina. So my brother and I, him more so than me, cause I was only four recognized Batman and Superman on the comic book rack. And we asked our parents if we could get comic books. And my dad always drew, although he was an engineer, he always drew. So he, he had no problem with that at first because they weren't expensive. They were a whole whopping 12 cents. Uh, at that time, <laughs> we didn't have a lot of money at the time when we first came here. So he, he thought it was good because it would encourage our art and encourage our, our reading of English uh, as we were learning the language. So just a couple of years later in the, like 67, um, late 67, I think it was a friend of my brother's at school told him, you shouldn't be getting those comics. You should be getting these cool comics. And <laughs> these cool comics, of course, at that time were Marvel comics. Mm -hmm. um, so we started getting Spider-Man and, and, and Fantastic Four kind of sporadically at that time. We didn't think of buying them as monthly books. We didn't, I don't think we even realized that we were still learning the language and stuff. It was just something fun and cool to get and to be able to read. And it really did help us learn how to read and write English a lot faster as a result of 
of getting of buying them. Um, and, and then we just kept getting comics because we kept drawing and we kept liking them. And he and I would just we didn't get a lot. We only got a couple of months each. And then I settled on Avengers as my monthly book because it had a lot of characters in it. So I figured if I'm only going to be able to get a couple books a month, so let me let one of them be a, a book that has a lot of characters in it. And so I got Avengers from issue 80 something all the all the way consecutively up forever uh until i started working in marvel um and 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 we just we just got different things i i was um my brother was the one who bought things thinking they'd be worth something and i was the one who bought things because i thought they looked really cool is what it amounts to and as a result of my method of getting them uh, I ended up being able to get Roy Thomas and Barry Windsor Smith Conan. I ended up being able to get Jim Starlin, Captain Marvel. Um, I, I ended up being able to get Marshall Rogers uh, detective stuff and so on and so forth. And that lasted all the way through college it, when, when I'd go to the spinner rack half drunk. <laughs> In my college days, I'd go to the spinner rack at a 7-Eleven because we didn't even have a comic book shop back then. Mm-hmm. And there's there's Swamp Thing anatomy lesson that I bought off the rack at a 7-Eleven, not because I'd been buying Swamp Thing at all, but because that one issue looked pretty cool. Um, yeah. uh, in high school, I got, in late high school, I got Frank Miller's Daredevil that way too. It was a great story. I, I saw the Bullseye Black Widow cover. I think it's 161 of Daredevil, and that caught my eye immediately. And I wasn't a regular Dare, Daredevil reader in the least, but I flipped through it. I said, crap, this thing looks good. This looks like Gil Kane on high octane. So I got it. And I, I just loved it. So I went back to the same 7-Eleven the next day and started flipping through the racks just in case any of the previous issues were there. And lo and behold, his first two other issues were there on the racks still. And it was a bi-monthly book back then, which makes me realize how slowly this 7-Eleven was clearing their racks off. And I ended up getting Frank Miller's run from the very beginning on Daredevil within two days you know, of, of having seen it for the first time, you know? Um, so that, that's how I collect it, you know? Um, as a result of my brother's collecting methods, though, I have giant size chiller, number one downstairs and giant size Spider-Man, <laughs> giant size fantastic book. Cause my brother thought those giant size issues were going to be worth a lot of money. And I yeah. also have a lot of comic books with the Marvel value stamps cut out of them. Cause he thought that Marvel value stamps were going to be worth a lot too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, how many uh, Hulk 181s have uh, are missing stamps today? <laughs> mine is. My, yeah. I raised my hand because mine is. My yeah. brother was, I make the joke, and I love my brother, so it's something I'm right on, but I'm not. I make the joke all the time that he always calls, like once a year he'll call me, and we live near each other, but once a year he'll call me and he'll go, is fill in the blank, gonna, do we have fill in the blank? And the most recent one was Luke Cage, Hero for Hire number one. I go, yeah, we have it. I bought the first five issues when they came out. Um, don't ask me why I was not even 12 years old yet, but I bought the first five issues of Luke Cage Hero for Hire. Um, and, and I go, yeah, we have it. He goes, oh, great. Because they announced it's going to be a Netflix show. So number one is going to be worth more. And it's selling a lot for a lot now, but it's going to be worth even more. I go, yes, it is. But ours isn't. He's like, what are you talking about? I go, our books are in horrific condition. They're all piece of crap because we read them a million times. And mm-hmm. they're not collector's items. Every time that would happen. And at one point he had asked me about Hulk 181. We have that issue, don't we? I go, yeah, we do. It's Wolverine's first appearance. He's like, I know. Seems going to be worth hundreds and more already. I go, yes, but not ours because it has some more. And I screamed out on the Marvel value. He said, come out of it. And he just... I just 
just heard him on the other end of the line go, oh, like he knew there was a punch <laughs> to the gut because that one was his fault. <laughs> See, the, the question is, is do you guys still have the Marvel value stamps? Did you put them in the book? <laughs> he has he has the whole book. He got okay. the book. He ordered the book from Marvel. And yeah. He put all the stamps in the book himself. It wasn't my gig. I helped him with it, but it wasn't my gig. Um, <laughs> so, and he has the book at his house. I haven't seen it or looked at it in forever because I just want to hit them every time I, I think of it. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Well, actually, I have a question for you. Um, I need your help in settling a, a very old debate, um, about 20-year-old debate, to, to, to say the least. Um, a little backstory to this. Um, back in my Navy days, a group of us, you know, we used to go to the cons, collect comics, swap, read comics with each other. And we used to be able to get free tickets to the USO all the time. And one time we got tickets to go see Fabian and Bobby Rydell and Frankie Avalon at, yeah. uh, for free. And so we're there we're like, wow, there's not too many people by the name Fabian. We're listing them off. And we can only come up with two people, obviously you and the singer. And the debate then turned into, wow, we wonder if – the writer ever used any of the uh, singer's uh, song titles in any of his uh, um, story uh, names. And so we spent like months searching comics and we never came, we could never <laughs> wow, find. That was really, really a stupid thing to be doing. <laughs> it is. I'll tell you, 20, ye- 20 years later. waste of your time. Yes. 20 years later, we still talk about that. And I got, I got some of my shipmates listening today wanting to know, did you ever use a song title as a story title? <laughs> You guys, you guys were the ones responsible for defending our country. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, we were. We would be on watch let's, with our night vision goggles. Like, what about uh, let's this? Let's do some. Let's do some basic math, okay? I was born in December of 1961. I did yep. not come to the United States until uh, August of 1966. Mm-hmm. Fabian the singer was popular in the mid to late 50s in mm-hmm. the United States, and he was like I think born in Philadelphia or from Philadelphia. Okay. The odds of my (laughs) either having been named after him or knowing anything about his music as a result of our age, my age and when his popularity was, is, is it starts to degrade rapidly those odds okay and that's been so, actually part of the debate too combine that with i grew up with every single mother of any friend i have going oh you're named after the singer and me having to say from the time i was seven eight years old no, no i don't even know a single song the singer has sung and to this day i'm 55 years old i still don't know a single song that fabian forte has ever uh-huh done so I'm sure what do you think the answer to your question is obviously no but you know what i had to throw it out there because like i say we joke about it and still talk about it 20 years later <laughs> now now we'll talk about how many ecs's there are in the world because i think there's not even like 25 in the entire planet and they all come from one region of spain so <laughs> oh well there you go shipmates there's your answer awesome well Okay, so Sorry. getting back, it's okay. <laughs> getting back into um, you know the comic run of things, getting away a little bit from uh, Red's uh, weird adventures as a Navy man. Uh, you know, you came. I just wanna, in- I'm picturing the Navy guy. I'm picturing the Navy guys like 20 years ago. If, a even having a clue who Fabian Forte is, or but B especially 
discussing him in some kind of a strange, <laughs> fantasizing sort of way. <laughs> Talking about a 1950s cutie boy singer that way. Okay, guys. But you know, when you get free tickets from the USO, you take them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I get it. I know. I also know it gets very lonely at sea. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on. <laughs> this is how you're ever gonna be remembered, Red. Yeah. yeah. Edit this portion. <laughs> no, I'm just staying in. Yeah, this this is all staying in. This is cool. This is all staying in. <laughs> <laughs> oh man oh okay so uh okay so back back to comics uh you know you came into the industry and your name got really big at like i guess like a really pivotal time in comics um for you what were some of your best memories i guess from i guess your heyday at marvel in the 90s and just uh being as big as you were back then um, it, it really, in hindsight, it's no different than it honestly was while it was happening. It was a combination of really, really cool and fantastic and really, really scary and unsatisfying and unfulfilling. Um, I, I was doing way too much work and way more work than I should have been, but I knew that, <laughs> um, I wasn't necessarily creatively fulfilled on a lot of the titles I was working on, but unfortunately most of those titles were the ones that were selling by far the most and making me the most money. So I hung on longer than I should have morally because I was paying for the college education of children I had that had not even been born yet. Um, so I, I really, I really had to juggle a lot of, um, a lot of a lot of moral conflicts for myself back then. Uh, the other side of the coin, on the other hand, is that I also worked staff at Marvel, and the majority of my memories are not about me as a writer. They're me working on staff and working with the people there, and going through the end of the shooter tenure and Tom Salco's tenure, and 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 even through to the end of Tom's tenure. Um, and and those were those were completely different sets of memories because those were exciting and fun and social and full of social activity and, and, and good people working their asses off and, and, and really, really elevating the company's stock uh, dramatically. Uh, unfortunately, it also meant that, that outside players got into the industry as a result of, of how good it was starting to do. Um, and, and they were responsible for all of the, the, basically the downfall of, you know, the company's success in the, in the mid to late nineties. Um, and, and that's always tempered, that always tempers the, the positives I had about my time on staff at Marvel with the negatives of, of what those guys who purchased the company, what they did to us and how they treated the industry. Um, so, so in, it, it's always been an interesting best of times, worst of times kind of a thing. Cause that's really what it was. Um, I just have a very, very different perspective um, than most people in comics have. I'm fortunate to have this perspective, but unfortunately I'm also on, on a bit of an iceberg floating at sea because very few people have had, had both sides of the coin on such a strong basis, which is the business side and the freelance, you know, on the writer creative side. Um, and, and that, that, that's been both positive and negative because, it prevents me from ever committing to one side of the coin or the other, which means I come across, I guess, really wishy-washy. Uh, but but the other the other aspect of it is that, that I 
I understand freelancer laments and freelancer complaints and freelancer joys, but I also understand business responsibilities and, and administrative and company um, uh, duties and, and in ways that most freelancers don't have a clue about, much less, no offense, much less people who comment and talk about the industry, you know? Um, so, so, you know, anytime I talk about it, I always, I always want to try to balance that, that it was not all good, nor was it all bad. It was like any job. It has, it has positives and negatives on a regular basis. And often that happens, you know, good, good and bad can happen on any given day within minutes of each other, you know, um, yeah. when you're working at a large company, and that, that's pretty much what it was. Okay. Well, this kind of leads into um, my next question a little bit. And I had a few fans wondering this as well. Um, you know, you were like one of the Marvel guys. Um, they had the whole split in the early 90s now with Image and everything else. Um, what kept you from leaving Marvel when so many people were jumping ship that you just wanted to stick with them? All right. Well, first of all, so many people jumping ship with seven artists. Okay. Right. Um, seven artists out of how many freelancers working for the company, how many staff people I'm on, you know, so let, let's, let's put it into a proper context. But okay. What they did was tremendously courageous and, and took gigantic brass balls. Um, and, and I never discounted that at the time that it was happening. Uh, that being said, it was also done in a very, very unprofessional manner because the guys involved were very young and, and we were all lacking in professional skills up to that point because we were all in our late 20s, early 30s um, and, and still figuring stuff out. So, so I think they did a lot of things wrong in how they handled leaving. I never once thought that their choice to make to form that company was a mistake. I was just an East Coast guy is really what it amounts to. And they were all, it was a West Coast operation. If you really think about it, pretty much it was a West Coast move by by a group of freelancers, and I was a staff employee of Marvel Comics. I was, you know, I was not a writer for Marvel Comics. I was a staff employee of Marvel Comics. So it it never really entered my mind to to even ask them if you know to to join up. Um, so, so it, it wasn't even an issue. It really wasn't. And I never discounted for one second that they wouldn't have initial success. Um, my, my concern as a writer who was producing seven monthly books was I know how some of these artists have a really, really hard time making a monthly schedule. How much harder is it going to be for them when they're making that much more money and have that much less incentive to produce monthly work? And quite frankly, that bore itself out pretty darn quickly. Um, there were some guys who had, you know, very, very solid regular work ethics, and there were some guys who didn't. So as a writer, I wasn't going to be happy putting out four or six books a year, you know, working working in that, in that capacity, um, because ultimately it really was an artist-driven move. It, it was a desire for artists to draw whatever they wanted to draw and profit as much as they possibly could from it without having to deal with a company dragging 80, 90% of the money for themselves to pay for their employees and their overhead. And I, then that's totally fine. There's, I, I agree with that a thousand percent. I mean, I was making a tremendous amount of money by the standards of anything I ever expected. And even that was a pittance in comparison to how much money the company was making off of the comics I was selling. 
you know? So I get, I got their beef totally. You know, we all did. Anybody who's a writer, anybody who's a freelancer, anybody gets that. They get that part of it, you know? It's the, it's the concern or the fear that, that you go off on an island. What if it doesn't succeed, you know? Um, and I'm, I was glad for them that it did succeed, but it wasn't, it wasn't even a contention on my part to even consider leaving, you know? Um, it, it just wasn't, I mean, you could ask me that 10 years later, I would have regretted, I, I regretted not having had the, the balls to make that kind of a move just because I left Marvel in 95 under unpleasant circumstances. And, and you know, and, and then there was no other, after a claim, there was no other company to, to put my, you know, to put my hat on as it were. Um, and I've always been much more of a, of a company teamwork player than I am a freelance writer, both in, in, in spirit and in body. I, I prefer, I prefer, I prefer the company structure and, and I prefer having you know, organized job responsibilities. Uh, I like creating on the side more than I like creating as my main thing. See, that makes sense. I, I'm happy personally, honestly. I'm happy that you kind of stuck with Marvel because I've always been a big X-Men guy and you had so much to do with so much X-Men stuff and mutant stuff that I liked with Marvel in the 90s. Um, now, that being said, um, events in the 90s, especially from Marvel and uh, other companies and stuff, um, they were like a really big deal. Like, they, oh, I mean, you had your Deaths of Superman. I mean, you had your Executioner songs, Age of Apocalypse, everything else. Um, but... How would you compare now being a part of some of that stuff in the 90s and compare what they did with events then to what maybe companies are doing with events now? Well, it's hard for me to compare because I'm not on the inside the way I was then. So I don't know. I don't know how they're planned or budgeted or placed into the publishing program. I don't know how they're creatively assigned or determined i mean i talked to a couple people that are in the in the in the marvel yearly meeting you know or, or twice a year meetings and stuff like that but you know I, i'm not i'm not that anymore that's not that's not my life anymore so i don't i don't know how they do it now i, I know how we did it back in the day and that was really that the, the success of previous x crossovers uh, uh, had led to the basically the institutional publishing program to have one once a year and the more x titles it started to profligate the the, the larger those crossovers became uh, you know as you can see leading from extinction agenda through through executioner's song um what happened unfortunately at marvel is that is that the new owners wanted to milk it like a cash cow as much as they possibly could so the idea that we do one X crossover a year turned into maybe two a year uh, or more. The idea that we would do f four specialty covers one a quarter for a publishing year turned into doing four a month uh, because Marvel's marketing and sales got involved in it because of the pressure that the company was being put under to generate more and more revenue. So, you know, we basically whipped, we basically whipped secretariat to death is what we did, you know? And, and in hindsight, it's really sad when you think about having, you having, you get to ride secretariat, but <laughs> the owners of secretariat tell you while you're riding, the horse whip it to death okay we want it to run as fast as it can even though we know it's going to die by 
before the finish line. And in essence, that's exactly what they did, you know, which is why, which is, you know, which is why the sales went down, which is why the whole idea of the events started to fade. Um, I, I mean, I honestly don't know because I don't read all the events now. I don't read DC's events. I don't read all of Marvel's events. I mean, I'm reading Secret Empire right now just because it was an interesting idea involving Cap, and Cap is always a character I'm interested in. Um, but but I, I really don't know how how they you know how they've decided and determined to do some of the things that they've decided and determined to do. You know. Yeah, definitely. I'm an old man, guys. I don't care that much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we uh we talked to uh, Ron Friend a while back, and he was saying uh, something along the lines. And he's like, you know, I don't keep up with a lot of the stuff, but at the same time, I feel like the creators nowadays don't really follow the same kind of mold of where these characters came from. And it feels like they have a lot more free reign now to just do whatever they want. And he was saying, telling us he doesn't understand why some of the decisions are made. So... Well, yeah, no, and generationally, that's absolutely been the case. I mean, the the post-Miller-Moore the post generation, it, 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 what, it, what really happened is, is guys, guys who came in the mid to late 90s um, saw Miller and Moore's deconstruction model as what should be the status quo rather than what more and more themselves saw it as when they did Watchmen and, 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 uh, and Dark Knight, which they saw it as an exception to the status quo in order to explore this in an interesting new way. So the next generation hitting, hitting the 90s into the, into the very early aughts saw it as how the status quo should be which is why you got so much deconstruction happening in mainstream superhero comics. Now the next generation after that, which is the current guys, the last three to five years worth of guys have grown up on the deconstructionism as a status quo model. So that's why everything feels for the most part from the big two superhero publishers like it's a complete clusterfuck of chaos in terms of the <laughs> characters and who they are and where they're from, because they all grew up thinking that, that, that nihilism and deconstruction should be the status quo for your superhero universe. Whereas it was always intended to be practically a, a what if or an else world, you know, um, the, the cool, the cool, the cool, um, you know, the, the cool exception to the rule rather than the very, very depressing downtrodden rule itself. Um, and, and I don't know, I don't know if that changes anytime soon. I, you'd have to get both companies to determine that they want to do what I would consider more mainstream comics in a more mainstream way. And I don't know if that's ever going to happen because guess what? We don't have a mainstream audience anymore because the mainstream audience for comic books goes to a comic book specialty shop and is 40 years old. You know, um, that that's the mainstream audience for superhero comics more so than anything else still. Um, so, so I don't know that we're ever going to get publishers having, you know, worrying all that much about having to create comics that a 10 year old or a 12 year old can, can enjoy and, and aspire you know, to want to be like those characters. Sure. Yeah, it's it's definitely moved to a different forms of media now for these characters, influencing younger audiences anyway. Yeah. But um, so I, I wanted oh. to ask. 
ever since you've gone freelance, you've done a few things here and there for DC or Marvel. Are you currently uh, working on on anything? Uh, you know, maybe for Image or self published or. Um, what's, uh, I am. I work. I work very regularly um, for Marvel and DC's custom comics divisions, um, especially this year, the last year or so, especially Marvels, um, and that's that's them hiring usually established veteran writers who know how to deal with outside client needs and know how to uh, you know understand the variety of characters that need to be used for the custom comics. Um, so, so I've been actually doing a lot of that work, and you never even see it, but but it's the equivalent of almost working on a monthly book at this point in terms of the amount of page, pages I do for them. Um, but I, I, I am working and have been working for most of this year, uh, percolating and developing a, a, a creator-owned digital comic uh, with an artist I've worked with before. We just can't announce it yet because the contract's not signed. Uh, and, and the company that I'm doing it with is hoping to announce it uh, at New York Comic Con. Um, but, but I've been working on that for for a while. It's an idea I've had for a while, but I was honestly incredibly lazy about percolating it. And, and the artist and I finally decided to get off our butts where it should be. <laughs> the artist and I finally decided for me to get off my butt and start doing it. Um, so, so we, we co-own this thing, and 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 we're going to launch it, and it should be coming out in early 2019. It'll be on a digital platform first um, for your iPad and your iPhone uh, or your Android. Um, and, and it's an established company that has a lot of established content on it, um, but but it is digital first, so it won't be print until 2020 probably. No, 2019. I'm sorry. It won't be digital. It won't be print until 2019 because it's going to come out in 2018. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, that's good. I was wondering if uh, if you decided to retire from that or no, just no, taking I just, your time. Um, I, comics hasn't been my comics hasn't been my main bread and butter for like 15 years. I, right. I mean, I saw the handwriting on the wall a long time ago because. Uh, I mean, when I say a long time ago, I mean a long time ago because I looked around and I realized, hey, I'm replacing. I'm replacing a whole bunch of people. Um, that means someone's going to replace me and, and, and then someone's going to replace them. And the further out you go from that replacement cycle, <laughs> the less likely it is that you're going to get consistent work. It is very, very few people far in between who get that level of consistent work over that long a period of time. And by consistent work, I don't mean getting to write one monthly book because quite frankly, getting to write one monthly book doesn't pay your bills, you know? Right. Um, mm-hmm. So, so it, we, you have to be writing two, three monthly books in order to be making enough money to pay your mortgage and, and your kid's college education and blah, blah, blah. You know, um, I, I saw that I saw a long, long time ago that that wasn't going to happen. And I never had that much faith in myself as a writer that I would, that I, that I had the ego to think that I'd be the one that the editors would keep hiring in that capacity. Um, so, so like in like 2001, 2002, I started, I started getting into intellectual property management, um, with a company in New York who I was being run by a friend of mine. And we, we do, I've been doing that as a real, real, like 60 to 60%, 70% of my workload on a yearly basis is usually that. And we've worked on Hollywood studio movies and we've worked on video game properties, and toy company properties and We've actually done social activation movements for governments and for universities, and, and we're working with a charity now in Canada. So it, it's all—it's very, very odd, different kind of work, but it all revolves around kind of like brand, brand narrative, 
um, reconstruction and, and, and franchise management, especially for Hollywood studios. Wow, that's great. Yeah, I've, I was I was looking up this Marvel custom comic thing because I hadn't heard of it before. Um, so it looks like it's essentially making, I guess, special co- uh, comics that aren't just ongoing titles or making advertisements, stuff like that. Yeah, it's always been around. It's just that the, Marvel had a custom so custom comics department division or group back in the late '80s, early '90s. It just it just didn't work hard enough back then. And right. the advert the guy who did the ad sales for Marvel was the one who should have been responsible for getting more of that happening. Quite frankly, he was a lazy shit, so he didn't do it. Um, <laughs> and and now it's an entire division because once Marvel got bought by Disney, Disney completely understands how to do consumer product, you know, right. and brand brand management. So they have a small department. Uh, unfortunately, the editorial aspect of it is way smaller than it should be, and the sales division of it is way higher than maybe it needs to be. I don't know, but they um, <laughs> they they work with all different kinds of companies. I mean, you know, I, in the last year alone, I've done. I've done custom comics for Marvel that involved Disney Interactive, involved a company called Siemens, involved um, uh, a pharmaceutical company called Takeda. I just, I'm still finishing one up for uh, Lexus on Black Panther um, and then working on another one uh, for another company now. And it's really, most of it is, is usually very straightforward traditional use of Marvel characters in a story that reflects the themes of the, of the company itself. It's, it's almost never a commercial. Um, and they usually don't want it to be a commercial. I mean, even, even the black Panther one I've been doing, it's an 80 page story, by the way, guys, it's eight, oh, 10 wow. page chapters. Um, and it's not a commercial for a Lexus car, even though it is a commercial for a Lexus car. <laughs> and how do you do that? You do it by making sure that the story is about the themes that the brand brings to the table. And, and they bring like, let's just, you know, let's do, let's do the commercial. They bring luxury and precision and, and creative design to the table for this Lexus model that they're selling. I'm not a car guy and it's a freaking gorgeous car. It's the uh, LC 500. It's an absolutely beautiful car and uh, it's like a $90,000 car. So it's, this isn't a, this isn't, this is a nickel and dime operation that they're pushing. Yeah. Here. Um, and, and, and so the black Panther story has to, what does it have to be about? It has to really be about how man and machine work together, not against each other, how the spirit of scientific invention and creation is actually a joint effort in many ways between man's imagination, creativity, and, 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 and perseverance, and, and the machine's actual precision and, 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 and desire to evolve, you know? Um, and then you, you apply those themes to the story and, and you make, you make a story that reflects all those themes. So it's this big, big fun action adventure thing where machine Smith is take, has taken over Wakanda and he wants to, you, you know, use the, the vibranium to basically be able to evolve all life on earth the way he sees it. You guys remember who machine Smith is, right? There's a great, the great bald, bald, bald <laughs> robot guy from Captain America. Yeah. Um, and, and um and and so that's how you write the story, you know. So you, you don't go into it thinking I'm writing a, a, a car commercial because you're really not. And if you do go into it thinking, if they want that out of me, I usually say no. 
uh, because it doesn't interest me. Um, but but nine times out of ten, I, you know, it's a guy I've known for a very long time and a friend of mine is the editor. He he calls me up because he's got a tough one and he's got a challenge on his hand and he calls me up because he knows that uh, he knows that I can handle that and he knows that I'm an idiot and I'm always curious and interested in a challenge. You know? <laughs> um, and and ultimately that's why I do a lot of the work because it sounds really difficult and it sounds really challenging when he offers it to me. And then when I'm halfway through, I kick myself in the ass for being an idiot having taken the assignment. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Yeah, you, that was that was deep. That felt like a, like a speech on Mad Men. Um, just there talking about oh yeah, yeah. so <laughs> I, I and it's funny I look just like John Hamm too. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's so crazy. I, I had no idea there was so much. Um, I, I guess that's that's why I fall for the ads. Is there's all this thought going into it and. Mm-hmm. Again, um, I, it it reminds me of there's been these like Snickers ads in uh, in DC Comics now where you're sort of reading the book, and then the next page the artwork's completely different, and it's like this story about Gorilla Grodd, and you're like, what what just happened here? Like, is this the same book? And then you're like, oh, I see, they gave yeah. him a Snickers bar. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, the Snickers ad. Yes, I'm, I'm sure you probably were one of the ones that were fooled by those Hostess Twinkie ads and the Hostess Cupcake ads, and you thought it was part of the actual story. <laughs> Thanos was flying a helicopter and throwing Twinkies and Hostess Fruit Pies out of the That's helicopter. such a good idea. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Tap, do you have any final questions? No, no, I'm good. It's just been a pleasure speaking with you tonight. and uh, I, We've been trying to do this for a while now, and so I greatly appreciate it and glad that we were able to finally make it happen. Yeah, my pleasure too, guys. And I appreciate you guys asking me different and offbeat questions rather than the usual. Well, we oh, yeah, to- man. <laughs> yeah, that's something that we always try to do. You know, uh, we, we've done so many guests now, and, uh, you know, uh, we, we've been told many times, like, oh, I always get to So, you know, it's always interesting to try and figure out something a little bit different, especially about the uh, the bigger names in the comic industry. It's crazy how much you can learn from, uh, I, I don't want you to take offense, but the old heads in the comic industry, man. I mean, we talk to yep. new guys, we talk to old guys, and I will say this personally, the older guys are a lot more fun to talk to. Yeah. Well, I mean, depending on what older guy you're talking to and depending on that older guy's particular experiences, I, I have I've been both fortunate and unfortunate enough to have had, you know, a pretty, pretty integral, interesting uh, experience during my times at Marvel. I, I got there at a very, very tumultuous, interesting time in the company uh, with with Jim Shooter being a year and a half or almost two years away from leaving and, and editorial upheaval and, and corporate ownership upheaval. Cause I think we went through two owners while I was there in 10 years. Um, and, and all of that made for a very interesting times, you know, the, the, the explosion of the direct market or in the downfall of the, of the newsstand market, all of this stuff was really interesting. Um, and, and I always look at my career through, I always look at my career through the lens of, of that, of having been a, you know, a staff employee at, at Marvel at a, a, an incredibly interesting time and having been actually, I, I consider an integral part of that staff um, when I was there um, because I, I really helped change the way we advertised our comics and our comics were selling more and more than they ever had before. Um, so, so it was much more, and I also was very, very integral in, 
improving the communication between departments and getting departments to get along better that had not been getting along that well for the years before I, I was there. It wasn't me alone, mind you. There was, a, there was you know, several of us that, that were leading that charge, but we succeeded at that time to, to do all of these things, integrate editorial sales, advertising, licensing in a much better way than they ever had been before. And really that was just through the sheer dint of, of positive social interaction between all the people involved. Um, so, so I always look at my, myself, my place in the industry, much, much more so that way than I ever have as the writer of Nomad or the writer of NFL Super Pro or anything like that. Hey, cool. You know, we're happy that you uh, did all this stuff. I mean, wh where would comics be today without Nitsieza? So, <laughs> Wow. I've never quite had it framed that way. <laughs> my immediate response would be, be not in the toilet. There you go. <laughs> there it is. Because listen, awesome. so they went into the toilet. So there you go. <laughs> awesome. Well, you know, we want to say thanks again for coming on the show. You're always thanks, welcome guys. to come back. And I mean, like I said, once you get that digital comic off the ground or anything, if you want to come back and talk to us about it, we will gladly talk to you about yes, it. Yes, absolutely. Okay, great. We should be announcing we should be announcing a New York Comic Con, but I'm not 100% sure what the schedule for the release will be. But, but I, I'd love to talk, talk it up in advance yeah. of that. Um, but anytime you guys want to have me back on again, my pleasure. Um, good questions, interesting, fun topics. Okay, guys? All right. All right. Thank, Thank you very much. much. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Have a good night. You take yeah, it easy. You too. Take care.